Greetings, film fans, and welcome to another edition of the Following Feature Podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Wilde, and here we go, another episode. It's Sunday, that means movies. Um, right, so let's just jump straight into the news. And um, uh, we've got a lot of news for you today, actually. There's been quite a hot week for uh, different stories emerging. And I guess it's just everyone kind of coming out of lockdown and trying to get some plan together to what they're going to do next. And I'm sure a lot of people have been stewing away with some amazing ideas that they just want to turn into a reality now. Um, and the first one, the one that really caught my eye this week, um, Tron Legacy, as we know, came out 10 years ago. Um, and the first Tron film came out about 26, 27 years ago. Um, and we were so excited to get the sequel, Tron Legacy. Um, it seemed like all the elements were in place. They had Jeff Bridges back. They had up-to-date CGI, which didn't turn out to be as good as we expected. But it was still groundbreaking the way that we expected the follow-up to Tron to be. Tron completely changed things when it was released. Um and they want to do the same thing with Tron Legacy. And that's where we really saw the first kind of like spectacular use of this de-aging technology. Um, it just wasn't executed very well. And maybe they were just a little bit, you know, it was just a bit too soon, I think is the, uh, the answer. But here we go. Rumours are circulating right now. And at first it was just a, a rumour because um, Jared Leto shared a, a picture on Instagram of the original Tron poster because um, it was the anniversary and just talking about what a significant film it was. Um, and of course, when the original um, sequel was planned, Tron Ascension, which is going to be the third film, um, there was talk of Jared Leto being one of the lead actors in that film. Well, those rumours started coming up again when he shared that picture earlier. But, uh, now it seems like Disney are actually in talks with Jared Leto about being the lead in the new film. So that means we might actually get another Tron film. And let's, you know, be serious. In today's, you know, market, with the technology that we have, and with Disney+, Plus, meaning that the company are more likely to take risks with their films rather than try to make them, you know, appeal to a mass market and compromising on the integrity of the, you know, the actual film. Um... I think we could stand a chance of getting a much better Tron film now. Now, I didn't really mind Tron Legacy too much. I thought it had some good elements to it. Um, you know, I love Jeff Bridges and everything, and he did all right. He did quite a good job. Um, I don't think he had much to work with. But what I found really surprising was Olivia Wilde. I thought she was outstanding. Um, I don't know if her character, I think it was called Io. I don't think she'd be coming back. I don't know what the um, idea of the story is. Another amazing element was they they added Daft Punk, who were some of the only people in that film that you really didn't have to dress up. They were already living in the future and therefore fitted into that. If anything, that was probably them like having a quick look at one of their many pasts. I don't know. But anyway. Um, so yeah, um, Disney are looking at um, Jared Leto as being the lead in the new uh, Tron film. I don't know if it's still going to be called Tron Ascension, but... You know, more on that when it comes up. Um, and they do want to get a lot of the old crew back involved. A lot of the filmmakers from Tron Legacy are still um, connected with this potential sequel. Um, but uh, the only one at the moment that might not be coming back is Joseph uh, Kuczynski, who was the director. He might, he wants to, you know, they want him to be the director of, of the, the new film. But he might be a bit busy at the moment because he's working on the Twister reboot. Um and think about it, I'm not sure I've ever seen Twister. 
I think it's one of those films that, you know, as much as I like a disaster movie, I think that was kind of penned as more of a disaster than it was supposed to be. But anyway, well, more on that as it comes up. Um, the next bit of news, unfortunately, a bit of sad news. Um, Ennio Morricone, the uh, uh, f- famed Italian composer of, of many films, um, apparently scored more than 400 films, which is just incredible. Um, unfortunately, passed away at the age of, I believe he was 82 or 92, sorry, which is incredible. Um, especially when you consider like the fact that he was still pretty much working in his 90s. Um, he's famous for scoring films like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. He did the whole um, Dollars series uh, with Clint Eastwood films um, and kind of made a name for himself in that whole spaghetti western Sergio Leone kind of films. And, you know, it really was quite an influential, um, probably one of the most influential um, film composers of all time. And you look back at all the films that he's he's been a part of, not just all the spaghetti westerns, but he um, obviously he did uh, Cinema Paradiso, uh, he did The Thing, he did The Untouchables, um, and one of his more recent films was The Hateful Eight. Um, Tarantino was a huge fan of his and always wanted to work with him, and almost did on uh, Inglorious Bastards, but unfortunately the timing wasn't quite right. But when it came round to The Hateful Eight, they they did get involved and. Not only did they get involved, but that's where um, Ennio Morricone won his first Oscar, working with Tarantino on The Hateful Eight. Um, but anyway, his influence was massive, massive. Can't really go into it. Um, you're probably more familiar with his music than you are his name. If you're wondering who I'm talking about right now, just Google. Google him uh, on YouTube, and any bit of music comes comes up, I think you, you're probably going to think to yourself, like, this sounds familiar. Um yeah, so unfortunately we lost him this this week, and and I'm not sure there'll be many like him. Um, I can talk, talk to you about millions of actors, thousands of directors, but maybe a handful of composers that, for me, have really made a significant impact on the world of cinema. There are lots of really great ones, but when it comes to the likes of uh, Morricone, he's, you know... It's hard to really kind of sum up the significance he had because there are some composers that you might find significant right now that are only around because of the work that Ennio did. So yeah, sadly missed. Um, and you know, it makes me think as well. Like I only I only saw the Hateful Eight at the cinema. Um, went to see it on IMAX screen because that's the way it's supposed to be enjoyed. Uh, but I'm thinking now I need to pick that up on like sort of a 4K Blu-ray just so I can really appreciate it again. I've, I'll say like. Um, this Christmas, I invested in a in a proper big fuck off UHD TV um, and a really nice, good quality 5.1 surround sound system, just because I wasn't really taking fully advantage of um, enjoying films at home. Um, and you know, that's it's one of those things that, I, I, as I say, I, I love going to the cinema. But I'm I'm so glad I did that because I, the only way I've been able to enjoy films at, over the last three or four months has been at home. Um, so well done me. Um, and, uh, yeah, so la- last week I was talking about how, um, I was hoping to get to the cinema because I really want to go and see Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. And it was supposed to be getting released in a 4K, um, restoration. Um, unfortunately that's not happening and the 2K edition is coming out and I was tempted to go see it because, as I quoted last week, I've never seen Empire Strikes Back at the cinema. That's not true. 
Um, and uh, shout out to Sam Watt. Thank you for pointing this out to me. Uh, he's a, a lifelong friend of mine. Um, and he reminded me that when the um, special editions were released in the late 90s, they were released at cinemas. So in 1997, I've been assured, I did go to see Empire Strikes Back with my friend Sam. Now, the reason why I might have forgotten that is because if, if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll understand why you we don't really talk about the special editions. Um, they basically took a film that was groundbreaking and mostly because of the special effects, which won Oscars, they ripped that part of the film out, put some shitty 90s um, CGI in there, and re-released it as a, an apparently improved movie, which it really, really wasn't. Um, and, you know, George Lucas has notoriously fucked with those films several times since. In fact, it's really, really difficult to find um, the original cuts of those movies because they are not on general release anymore. They're not for sale. I have them on VHS which isn't great. I, I don't even have a VHS player. I don't have, like, something to play them on. Them and... They're, they're sitting in the corner of, of my um, my shelf with... <laughs> um, well, I'm just having a look up there now. I can see Planet of the Apes and I can see Quantum Leap. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what happened to a lot of my VHS collection, but for some reason these... There's like a handful of things that I, I held on to because I was like, nah, we're not seeing those those again. Um, and Star Wars is definitely one of them because we're just not getting those um, original theatrical cuts at all. Um, and one thing I did manage to find, actually, um, uh, and I, I managed to get a copy of through uh, crowdfunding, um, was there was a restoration of Star Wars New Hope, which um, took 10 years of work of people tracking down enough copies where they could uh, edit together a f the full theatrical version of the film, but fully restored in 4K. And this took so much work. I mean, people who had the reels of film, but they weren't complete or they're slightly damaged. Um, people who had the, like, the laser discs and old VHS copies and all the different elements they used to put this film together and have a perfectly good 4K restoration of A New Hope. Uh, the theatrical cut with none of the new special effects. Because I I'm telling you, if we go to see um, the, the 4K restoration of Empire Strikes Back, I guarantee you it's going to have the uh, updated special effects. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, so you can find that online. If you do go and search for A New Hope, the 4K restoration. I can't remember what the project was called, but they did a fantastic job. Um, and because I, I participated in the um, the whole, uh, you know, fundraising thing, um, crowdfunding thing, I got a copy of it, which I was, I was quite surprised as well, because it was something like 12 gigs to download. Um, but my God, it's just incredible. Um, uh, but yeah, so back back to my point, I did actually go and see Empire Strikes Back at the cinema. Sorry, Sam, I didn't mean to just ignore that memory we shared together. Um, but thank you for reminding me. Um, and now I know at least you're paying attention to the podcast. That's good. But that film turned 40 recently, and, and I did too. So um, it got me kind of thinking about other films that uh, were around at the time when I was born. Um, and lo and behold, there's been two anniversaries this week of films that have turned 40 as well. Uh, one of being, 
one of which being one of the most classic uh, and inspirational spoofs of all time, Airplane. Um, which is just, I mean, if you haven't seen Airplane, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you, really. It's its literally one of the most um, groundbreakingly funny films of all time. It might be a bit dated now, and some of the younger audience might look at it as just just crass and cheap jokes, but at the time it was it was something that had never been done before. That kind of self-aware, tongue-in-cheek way of making films was was new. It was exciting, and it was, you know, really, really... I mean, for me, it's a timeless classic. I just love Airplane. There are so many jokes in there that have, you know, stood the test of time. Of course, it being 40 years old, there's going to be elements of misogyny and racism in there that, that might not be um, viewed in the same way these days. Um, but I don't think there's anything harmful there, or I don't think there's any kind of perpetuated stereotypes or hatred towards anyone that really needs to be kind of cancelled in this modern way of looking at things. Um, there are going to be things there that you have problems with, but you've got to look at it. It is very tongue-in-cheek, and a lot of the more controversial parts of it will be seen as more kind of ironic. Um, the other film that turns 40 this week is Blues Brothers. Now, a lot of people, you know, a lot of modern audiences don't really like this film, and a lot of people say it hasn't dated very well. But for me, it's exactly it's exactly the film that I wanted it to be, and it still holds up great the most significant thing about the blues brothers film was the soundtrack and you had everyone you had like sort of ray charles you had john lee hooker you had um uh, aretha franklin you had everyone and it was an incredibly uh well-made film in regards to like the musical element of it and the, the story is basically just um two guys they're on a mission from god um that's about it really um they got to get the band back together, um, and to to kind of build up success, they end up taking a load of gigs that are just terrible. Um, they they end up working in one country and western bar where they want to play like sort of blues and soul music that's kind of not really in keeping with the um, redneck mentality. Um, so they they entertain the audience by just doing um, the rawhide theme tune, uh, which is hilarious, but it gets the crowd going and. Uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's it's a crazy film with amazing performances from John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, um, and just a whole heap of just calamity and just weirdness and fun and just stupidity. It has it broke the record for the most cars destroyed in one scene, um, which is just and it's just it's the dumbest scene. I can't really describe it to you without it sounding stupid. Um, you know, they they cause a car crash between a, a couple of police cars. Uh, which causes another police car to crash into it, and on and on and on, until I think about 100 police cars are crashed on top of one another. There's a whole pile of them. And it's it's a completely pointless scene, but the more it goes on, the more it becomes just, just like stupidly hilarious. And um, this was a film that didn't take itself too seriously and wanted to be more of a kind of art comedy project than a cohesive storyline or you know, a family-friendly movie. It's definitely not family-friendly. Um, but the music's fantastic. Um, I don't know if there's much swearing or, like, sort of violence in it. Um, I'm just trying to think now. Is there any nudity or anything in it? Anyway, it is a classic film. And it's, it's kind of weird now, thinking back that, like, sort of around the same time, Empire Strikes Back, Airplane, and Blue Bro Blues Brothers came out. And the fact that we're still talking about those three films today meant 
you know, if you were uh, around in that period and you were going to the cinema, you must have been just absolutely loving it. There's all kinds of great films coming out. There's still great films coming out now, but we're just not allowed to go and see them. Not until the end of the month. Cinemas open again, and I'm not sure I'm going to go back. I'm a bit scared. I, I, I might go and check it out, but, you know, I don't know. On with the news, though. More news. Jude Law is to play Captain Hook. Um, it, there's the uh, film Peter Pan and Wendy. It's a retelling of the 1953 classic. Now, David Lowry of uh, Pete's Dragon is due to direct. Um, and Jude Law, who was supposed to be spending his summer playing Dumbledore, uh, is very excited about playing the character. That he'd be walking in the footsteps of um, the likes of Dustin Hoffman and um, Hugh Jackman more recently in the uh, adaptation Pan. Um, yeah. Um, not really sure what to make of that. Uh, Jude Law's a very interesting actor. Uh, I do like him in stuff. Uh, I thought he was interesting in Captain Marvel, but they could have they could have done much more with that film. Um, yeah, this is going to be the latest big budget, like, sort of reimagining of Disney classics. Like, they've been doing all their um, films like the, the Jungle Book and the, the Lion King and Dumbo. Um, so, yeah, here comes another one. They're going to do Peter Pan and Wendy. Um, who knows? Who knows? It could be good. It could be just... I, I mean, I don't think any of these um, remakes have really kind of stood out as being as good, if not better, than the originals. Um, so I still see this as more of a kind of experiment in cinema, as far as Disney's concerned. But we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, other movie news. Um, one that I'm actually quite excited about. Uh, Idris Elba uh, says the plans are moving forward for the Luther movie. Now, if you're not aware, uh, Luther is a TV series based in the UK. It's a cop detective drama. It's a very dark and gritty, um, grounded show. Uh, um, and it's it's written by uh, Neil Cross, who's a famed um, crime novelist. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic show and it's received a very, very deserved amount of acclaim in this country and around the world. And it's kind of helped launch Idris Elba, who's now like more of a, a movie star than a, a TV star. But, you know, he keeps coming back to the role. And it's the, a weird thing that the BBC does is they have these huge flagship drama shows that they are not committed to at all. Um, and when I say not committed to, I mean, like, there's no real time restraints. Um, Sherlock has never been cancelled, but we only get a series like once every two or three or five years. Um, Luther's the same. We'll take it'll take two or three year breaks, and they'll come back and do like a a three parter, and that blows everyone away. It's, it's still the quality is still there, and Idris Elba is just a fantastic actor. He's uh, another actor that's been um, kind of linked with the the James Bond role, um, and for me, I've not really been too keen on that. Um, not because he doesn't look like the rest of the James Bond, and I know what people are thinking. That's that's one of the things that. Um, people will assume and the fact is that he's just a bit old really um and i just i just yeah i felt if you'd if you'd got him around the time that um they cast daniel craig then i'm sure that would have just that would have been a home run that would have been the, the fucking perfect thing i think daniel craig's done a fantastic job um and whilst the franchise hasn't always been handled with the amount of um care and love than it needs i think it did a decent job 
But we might be getting to see what is basically the closest to uh, an Idris Elba Bond on screen that we're going to get, and that's a possible Luther film. Um, uh, apparently, Neil Cross has been working on uh, the feature for a while, um, and it's very, very close to happening right now. Um, Idris Elba's been quoted as saying there'll be more murder and more Volvos. So that's that's good. Um, yeah, that's the thing. He was never like sort of, you know, wearing expensive leather jackets and Ray-Bans and driving a Ferrari. Uh, the guy wore a, a raggedy old trench coat and drove a shitty old Volvo. Um, and so it wasn't style over substance at all. Although it is a very slick TV show and, and the style is there. Um, I did actually work on the last series of Luther and it was a very interesting experience. Um, unfortunately I didn't get to work on it as long as I'd been originally scheduled to. One thing they realised, I was playing a CID officer, basically, whenever he's at, um, you know, headquarters in the office, working things out, I was one of the guys in the background, um, trying to solve cases. And it's an, a very interesting set as well, because, um, everyone needs to know who they are and what their story is, including all of the background. And you don't always get this, it's, it's not always really seen as important, but, um, they were very clear that everyone needed to have a story. They needed to know their story and they needed to be able to um, answer questions that they were tested on the spot. And there'd be occasion where like an assistant director would come up to you and go, you, what are you doing? And I'd just, you know, you'd have to be like sort of grabbing a file going, oh, I need to double check the fingerprints in this case file and see if they match up to any old cases that might be linked. Goes, good, good, work on it. And like, like we're really investigating stuff. Um, but I loved that because it, it created this kind of buzz and this atmosphere in the office that really felt almost genuine. Um, I did have more of a kind of involved role at one point that was cut, unfortunately. Uh, but it, it wasn't huge. It was just me making some noise on a mobile phone whilst everyone was um, trying to concentrate on an operation that was happening in live live feeds on the on the monitors. And I get, I get barked at and sent out of the office. Unfortunately, that was cut, but it probably looked shit anyway, so I'm not really too fussed about that. It was a great experience on set, though. But yeah, as I say, one of the first things they realised on set was... Um, it was like 90% dudes. And whilst, you know, that wasn't their intention to make it sort of a very male-heavy office, they felt the balance was so far off that they had to release a lot of the male detectives on the first day and replace us with females. So I got to work on Luther, but unfortunately it was one day of work. Um, but I had fun. And the, the interesting thing was, um, I've kind of got this ongoing thing with... Uh, if there's apple strudel on set, there's almost a guarantee that I'm going to get caught eating it by principal cast. This this is just a weird thing that's happened to me uh, several times. On this one, it happened on this. I was doing my scene with a mobile phone, and um, once we'd got that in the can, so to speak, I was excused from set and sent back to my holding area. And on the way back, I, I as I was leaving the, the, um, the set, um, I noticed there was a tray left out of freshly baked apple strudel in slices which is delicious and it's you know it's a common thing that you find like sort of um little treats and snacks and you know munchies are left around to kind of keep everyone going keep their energy up um but i i famously um well i say famously uh, amongst the group of my friends that i've heard this story countless times uh when i was working on uh, a tv show called arthur and george for itv um i i, I found one of these little tea stations hidden behind the set uh i went to grab a cup of tea and found a tray of strudel and 
was enjoying a slice to the point where I just, you know, kind of broke out into a little bit of a song and dance about apple strudel. I don't even, I don't, I don't know why it inspired me to to act that way, but I did. And that was when the uh, lead actor, Martin Clunes, caught me. Um, and yeah, he caught me by surprise and I immediately just kind of shrank into the size of a tiny, tiny, tiny little man. Um, so ashamed of my little dance moves. I don't know. It was just a weird situation. I got caught out and he was nice, but I was embarrassed. Same fucking thing happened to me on Luther. Um, noticed a bit of strudel and I was just giggling to myself about how like I, I stupidly made a song and dance about it and for some reason broke into the same little song and dance. And as I'm grooving like on my own in a hallway wearing a suit with a piece of apple strudel, I suddenly turned and there, and he was, he was on a step up from where I was. But Idris Elba was just stood there with his hands on his hip and this menacing look on his face, just staring, staring through me. And I just, I just like, just dance away, apple stewed, little apple stewed. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, just, again, I don't, just fucking, I don't know how that's happened to me twice, but I embarrass myself in front of actors with apple strudel dances. Um, yeah, that wasn't the only time I embarrassed myself in front of Idris as well. There was another time when I came back on set and, um, his double, um, and you, you have like doubles or stand-ins that basically will be on set for when they're setting up all the lights and cameras and everything. So you don't have to ask your principal actor to do all that and just stand around like an idiot. They, we get hired as idiots. Um, I've doubled for actors before in the past and just standing there while setting up lighting, it can be quite boring, but you can understand why the main actor doesn't want to do it. And hey, they pay you, so I'm happy to do it. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the stand-in was just, he was doing nothing all day and the poor guy, oh, what was his name again? Oh, he had, he had like sort of an almost like Spanish, like Latino name. Um, but anyway, um, I was coming back on set and I saw him just kind of stood there, like just in the way. And I remember just walking up and putting my arm around him going, are you going to do a fucking thing today or what? And just like the look on Idris Elba's face as he turned to me. And I was like, shit, shit, what have I done? Um, and I just kind of, I just immediately kind of took my hand off his shoulder. I was like, I'm sorry, I thought you were your double. And he kind of gave me a kind of confused look. And it's hard to really say whether or not he was pissed off. The thing is, actors are trying to kind of have this inner quiet and trying to, you know, get themselves ready and sharp for the scene they're going to film and when you when you accidentally interact with them it's not uncommon for them to just simply kind of blank you and go back to you know their their whole preparation um and it's not for you to get upset about anything personal like that these are professionals and you're supposed to let them do their job the idea about being a good um supporting artist is that you're pretty much just walking scenery that may sound a bit kind of, you know, a bit of a shitty way to kind of describe it, but you're not supposed to make a scene, you're not supposed to be noticed, you're not supposed to be kind of causing a fuss or interrupting people or just kind of, you know, interfering in, in the process in any way, shape or form. So what I did put my arm around him and, and interrupting him like that was not cool. And, you know, I felt bad about it. But um, I think it was understood, the mistake that I'd made, um, and it was cool. Um, 
I'm sure that had nothing to do with me being sent home after the first day. <laughs> Shit, I'm just thinking about that now, actually. Ah, oh, did I fuck it up? Nah, nah. Nah. Anyway, more news. Seth Rogen is making a Ninja Turtles movie. Now, <clears throat> I read that and I got really excited because I don't know if you saw Sausage Party, but Seth Rogen and his production team and his the people that he works with, um, they they know how to make really silly, crude humour. And knowing that the um, original comics uh, that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird make made were were quite gritty and you know adult orientated um action comics with violence and you know they weren't really made, meant for kids so i heard this um headline i thought we're going to get a real ninja turtles film here this is going to be exciting no that's not that's not that's not it at all what's actually happening is uh, nickelodeon are doing a full CGI animated film. So if you imagine the way that like sort of DreamWorks and Pixar make their animated films, um, imagine Ninja Turtles being made kind of, yeah, I was going to say Toy Story style. I, they're not going to be like sort of the action figures come to life. Um, but yeah, it could be good. It could be good. But I don't know. There's like an element there there's, there's some ingredients there to a, a, what I think would be a better film for me. Um, although I feel that they can probably churn out a pretty decent film in regards to uh, getting the audience in. I just, when I first saw that headline, Seth Rogen to make Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, my hopes got up so high. That would be, that'd be quite incredible. Um, I can imagine, like, if, if they were to lend their voices. I mean, if, think about it. Seth Rogen, um, like Bill Hader, uh, Jonah Hill, uh, and maybe James Franco playing the Ninja Turtle voices. That that'd be fucking incredible. Who who wouldn't want to watch that? That'd be really really awesome. And I bet he could rope in someone like fucking Robert De Niro to do the voice of Splinter. I don't know. I don't know. There's a there's a better film being made in my head than I think is going to be released. Um. I haven't even watched the second Michael Bay film because, you know, Michael Bay. I know I heard some positive things about him and we talked about that last week, but oh, I don't know. I, I will watch it at some point, you know, but uh, it's just a bit silly. Anyway, in more news, uh, Janelle Monet wants to play Storm in Black Panther 2. Now, Storm is one of the most um, significant members of the X-Men and um, as we know now, Marvel have got the rights to the X-Men back from Fox. And these are going to be characters that are going to be rebooted in the MCU. So we're going to see them turn up at some point. Um, and it doesn't look like we're going to be... I mean, with the whole thing with um, First Class and that whole kind of current cast, they're, we, we, they're not going to do the same kind of origin story again. Um, and they, they're probably going to look to mix it up a little bit. So it looks like the characters might be introduced in a couple of different ways, in a couple of different films, and maybe not in their own, you know, project to begin with. Um, we've already heard that there's a proposal going around for Hulk versus Wolverine as a movie. I think Mark Ruffalo is one of the people that's really kind of pushing that one. Um, but no one wants to play 
um, Wolverine at the moment because Hugh Jackman did such an incredible job over such a long period of time. And to go out on a film like Logan, um, yeah, I think to establish someone else in that character right now is maybe a bit too soon. So don't expect to be hearing about Wolverine anytime soon. Um, but as far as X-Men characters go, it looks like Storm is going to be the first one. And there is the possibility of her being introduced in Black Panther 2. Um, Monet, who I've only seen in Moonlight, is a 34-year-old singer-songwriter who's proved that she can act. Um, and apparently she, she met the crew, the cast and crew of Black Panther when they were filming. And they talked to her about the possibility of like getting involved in the next film. And she said straight away that there's there's only one character that she's ever wanted to play. And that's Storm. Now, this could work. This could actually, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that she's probably thrown out there in, in, in a kind of hit and hope situation. But I think it's stuck because Storm, her backstory is that she is an African princess from Kenya. And in the comics, she did actually have a romance with T'Challa, um, who is Black Panther, King of Wakanda. So that's very possible now at the moment the, the most likely rumor we have going around for black panther 2 is that it's going to be introduced in the character of namor um the king of atlantis uh, basically marvel's version of aquaman although with a better name than aquaman sometimes you hear those superhero names back and you kind of it's almost like you're hearing them for the first time and you're like that is yeah they didn't really try hard over at dc you know um it's quite on the nose, some of their, their, their superheroes. Like, there's a man who was bitten by a spider who has the abilities of a spider. He's Spider-Man. Uh, you, know, you know what? I'm, I'm immediately fucking up because that's Marvel. This is going to get edited out of the podcast. But anyway, uh, Janelle Monet might be playing Storm. Might not, but that seems very likely now. And there seems to be a, a way in there uh, that works for the MCU because they want to introduce these characters without having to be too kind of on the nose with another X-Men film. Um, and, you know, it's an existing storyline that could be very easily written into the the, the Black Panther sequel. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. As soon as I have more information, I'll let you know. Um, the last bit of news this week, uh, one that I'm really looking forward to, um, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how Ryan Gosling was being uh, was trying to put together what, what, proposing his own version basically of the Wolfman um, to kind of fit in with the classic movies uh, classic classic movie monsters initiative that um, uh, Warner Brothers are doing. Um, we had uh, uh, Lee Wenell's um, Invisible Man, which I gushed about because it's an absolutely fantastic film and really really good. That was uh, incredibly successful, considering it cost $7 million to make and grossed $124 million at the box office. And to put that into some kind of perspective, that might not be Marvel money, but that film was released pretty much as the, the pandemic was kicking off. So numbers at cinemas were dropping rapidly around the world, and it still took a huge profit. When you're, when you're using a budget of $7 million, if it gets a good audience, that's always going to have a great return, but... Now Ryan Gosling is saying that he wants to do The Wolfman, and it looks like uh, Bloomhouse Productions have said, we'll bring Lee back, and we'll put those two together, and we'll use that as, you know, that will be The Wolfman film. So it looks like Lee Wannell is in talks now to direct Ryan Gosling in The Wolfman. And that sounds fantastic. I really like this. I, I think Lee Wannell's a, a fantastic filmmaker, uh, has great imagination, and... Um, doesn't need to overspend to make a film look good. 
keeps the elements quite stripped down and and is um, economic with his use of uh, like CGI and stuff. Um, uses the audience imagination quite quite well. Um, so yeah, that's a fantastic bit of news, and I really hope that does work because when they were calling it the Dark Universe and they try to kick off with Tom Cruise's mummy, kind of fell on its face a bit. Uh, but now. You know, they've, they've had a surprise hit with The Invisible Man. Um, and it looks like they might be able to take that forward. And as I say, it's been referred to now as uh, Universal's Classic Movie Monsters Initiative. Sorry, did I say Warner Brothers? I didn't mean to say Warner Brothers. Universal's Classic Movie Monsters Initiative. We might be getting Wolfman. It might be Ryan Gosling. And if everything comes together the way it did with um, The Invisible Man, we might have a really good classic horror film on our hands there. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. Now, on to our movie reviews. The first movie we're reviewing this week is Greyhound. This is the first Apple film, uh, Apple original film to be released on their streaming service. Um, although it is actually a Sony production, which I found quite amusing when I was watching it. Um, anyway, Greyhound starring Tom Hanks and directed by Aaron Schneider. The film is based on the book The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester and tells the tale of Commander Ernest Krauss, a senior naval officer for many years, and his very first wartime mission. That mission is to escort a convoy from the US to Britain at the height of World War II and the infamous Battle of the Atlantic. Knowing that he would be seen as inexperienced and probably only there to make up the numbers due to the devastation of Pearl Harbor, Krauss struggles to gain the confidence of his crew on the USS Keeling, nicknamed Greyhound. He doesn't have to wait long before that opportunity presents itself in the shape of a German U-boat attack. And whilst they experience some initial success, the odds are very much stacked against them and their chances of surviving the mission and making it to Britain. It will take all of the experience and courage that he and his crew can muster. Now, with little exposition and a relentless pace, this film is palpably intense. Whilst we do get some small flashback scenes at the beginning, giving us a bit of insight into Krauss's unrequited love life, there is little to no exposition here. Instead, we're thrown right into the story and how this captain must overcome not only his own expectations, but that of his crew uh, to get them from their destination in one, to their destination in one piece. Now, I enjoyed this film. Um, I heard, I, I mean, obviously I didn't read any reviews or anything before watching it. I like to have a, a fresh uh, opinion of films without being, you know, influenced in any way or shape or form. And I've got to say, I, I actually really enjoyed this film. Um, as I say, there there is no real exposition. As I say, you get a, a brief glimpse into who Krauss is and um, how things haven't really worked out for him. Like, he spent his whole career being this captain, but it's been mostly kind of ceremonial um, and taking part in exercises. This is war now. And he, he really does get some actual wartime experience but it's it's a lot it's a lot to take on and as far as first missions goes this is a serious test for him and i think tom hanks does a fantastic job of conveying this guy's um you know the conflict that's going on in his head because life hasn't really kind of worked out the way he expected and whilst he is exactly where he wanted to be and he has achieved everything that he wanted to achieve um, he hasn't found the happiness outside of his career that he really wanted. And there's this amount of self-doubt which just kind of 
is saturated into his his self-belief it's just it's hard for him to really kind of inspire confidence instead he needs to separate himself from the expectations of others and rely on his training and his experience and his history um and and hope that everything that he's been taught everything that he's learned comes into play comes you know comes good and it's you know quite exciting there's a lot of tension in this film we're thrown straight into the battle and we're 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 basically given a good idea of the relentless and exhausting um encounters that happen and how even the the expected can be unexpected and all the different elements to be taken into consideration the emotional turmoil it takes uh, knowing that slight wrong decision could cost one to a hundred lives um, and there are thousands literally thousands depending on his ability to get them safely to where they need to get to um, it's stripped back and it's very economical on its use of uh, as I say exposition and storytelling there are some characters in this film that are significant all the way through and the actors give fantastic performances but I don't even remember their names I'm not even sure if names were even used at some point I mean, Stephen Graham is used as, he's the XO. Basically, he's the guy that's um, the brains of the ship and kind of coordinating the different um, logistical parts of what's what the ship's capable of and what it's doing. Um, and he's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. But who is he? We don't really know. Uh, what is his background? It's not really explained. Um, he's just there. And, and, and the thing is, it doesn't really need to be explained. You know what he's doing. You know how good he is at doing his job. All of that is conveyed through the actor's performance and um, the limited dialogue he has with other members of the team, uh, of the crew, sorry. Um, and Stephen Graham, he's not going to let you down. He's one of the finest actors working today. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 a really incredible um, performance from everyone involved. And I really need to look into a bit more about the actual cast and, and the director because Aaron Schneider isn't super experienced. He doesn't, he, you know, it's not his first um, job. And what I found most surprising was that um, whilst this is only his second feature that he's directed, he did win an Oscar before he directed any feature films. Um, and he kind of made a name for himself in his uh, he'd, in a short film that he did. He got an Academy Award for a short film. Um, and I'll tell you who else, a little interesting fact here. Peter Capaldi, yes, Doctor Who, has also won an Oscar for a short film that he made. So there you go. If you feel like you you need to make it in this industry before you can really get onto that stage and be recognised for a, a, a you know the great filmmaker that you are, not necessarily true. If you can really show your your talents on a smaller scale, then that might open the doors for you big time. I don't know what the hell am I talking about. I'm just kind of waffling on here. Greyhound though, it's available on Apple Plus, and if you like a good war film that's full of you know seriously as i say palpable tension and action from beginning to end you know it, it really does it it mixes all the different elements of a good drama uh, a good war film um and a good kind of study into uh the psychology of people under that kind of pressure and what it does to them um not only that but how people can inspire confidence in others um, and how certain situations can bring the best out of people. 
sometimes when your back is against the wall, you really find out who you are. And that's what happens with this film. Um, I really enjoyed it. I'm, yeah, it's it's 90 minutes long and all of that is killer, no filler. I think it's really worth a watch. So check it out. Greyhound is on Apple Plus. I say there's not really much to watch on Apple Plus. So this might be a good opportunity to use that um, seven day, you know, um, what do they call it? Free trial. I think it's only seven days. If you just do the trial just for this film alone, it's worth it. Our next film is uh, just being released on Netflix, which more people have and therefore might be more likely to watch. The Old Guard uh, stars Charlie's Theron in this comic book adaptation from director Gina Prince Blythewood and director Greg Rucker, who also penned the comic. The story picks up when a group of immortal mercenaries take a risky mission, which ultimately results in them being exposed. Having survived for hundreds of years in the shadows, they are now hunted for the secrets of their long life. Knowing they cannot run and hide in the modern world, they must risk it all to hunt their hunters and reclaim their anonymity. But a complication in the shape of a newly realised immortal soldier throws a spanner in the works. The team must work together, but decades of increasing stress and danger in a world fraught with new and intelligent threats has time finally caught up with them. Will the addition of a new team member be their salvation or their downfall? Now, this film's strengths is in its cast and the delivery of some quite hammy dialogue. It half asses its exposition and gives a watered-down gravitas to many scenes that felt like they were supposed to mean more. The sound design is moving and emotional, but it seems ill-fitting for this movie. Indeed, as watchable as it was, the film is a bit of a mishmash of ideas that don't quite mesh. It felt more like watching the end of a trilogy rather than the beginning of one there seemed to be an assumed understanding of the audience that fails to reach the average viewer. Now, I watched this film, and I was conflicted watching it because I had to keep asking myself, like, am I actually enjoying this? Because there were parts of it that I really liked. And there were parts of it that I didn't. And what I found surprising was, it's like you take certain elements of this film away from the film, and on their own, they're good. But as part of this whole feature, not so great. And it's just, it's one of those films that all the way through, I felt like I was missing something. Like there was some kind of element that would tie this all together and really kind of make it work. And I can't really, I couldn't put my finger on it. There was, it just, it just seemed a bit empty. And by the end of the film, I just thought, I, I, you know, you're supposed to kind of feel a certain amount of um, apprehension and tension in the kind of supposed, I don't know, vulnerability of these characters. But I guess that's the hard thing when you're talking about people that are immortal and you're trying to create a vulnerability about them. Meh. You know, where do you go from that? Well, there's quite some quite obvious ways you can go with that. And they pretty much hit those throughout the film. There, there are what I believe were intended to be twists in this film but don't be surprised if you see them all coming a mile off because I did and I wasn't really paying that close attention and I'm not saying that I didn't give this film the attention it deserved I gave it all the attention it deserved it just didn't grab my attention for long enough for me to actually become emotionally invested in anything that was happening on screen and it was a shame really because again you've got all the elements there to make a good film the execution just wasn't quite there. And for me, this this fell short of the mark. I I liked it, 
and I felt there was a lot you could do with it. I just felt that, um, I, I don't know, half-assed is probably, probably the best way I can put it. There was a lot going on in this film that could have been great. Unfortunately, it just just didn't happen. Now, as I say, it's on Netflix. Watch it if you want. Don't go out of your way to watch it. It's not an amazing film. You know, as far as the, the world of comic book adaptations that we're seeing at the moment, I don't know. This kind of reminded me of The Losers, um, which is another one of those uh, pre-Captain America Chris Evans films about a group of assassins that, um, you know, for one reason or another have to kind of come out of hiding to reclaim their freedom. It's it's a weird comparison, but that film was slammed by critics and I enjoyed that more than I enjoyed this. Um, and this has had some decent reviews from what I can hear. As I say, I haven't read the reviews yet, but I know it's currently sitting with like a, quite a positive score on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. Metacritic so... Some people will enjoy this film. Some people will be able to take it for what it is and just be able to kind of, you know, suspend disbelief enough to just have a bit of a laugh with it. But for me, yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of what they did with this. And considering they had, again, you know, another um, complaint that I make quite often, if you've got really good, successful, um, you know, source material, you shouldn't fuck it up. And any fuck-up that comes up up from that is yours. What you've done with something that was already working and already successful has made it unpopular. That's your fault. So, yeah. Not a great film. um, And not one that I would necessarily recommend you rush out to watch. My final film, however, my indie film of the week is one that you should rush to watch. And it is also on Netflix. Now, The Endless is directed, produced, and starring Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And when I say directed, produced, and starring, these guys did, like, fucking everything in this film. Um, Justin Benson wrote the film. He wrote the script for it. Aaron Moorhead was the director of cinematography. They both directed it, and they are both the stars of the film. And the film, well, it tells the tale of these two brothers who are trying to adjust to the real world, having escaped and survived a suicide cult. Things aren't quite working out for the pair, and when a mysterious videotape arrives in the post, the two discuss visiting their old commune in order to remind themselves of how bad it was, or to realise how wrong they were. The brothers' conflicting memories are causing too much tension, and their inability to integrate with society may come from a lack of closure on what was the most significant period of their lives. Upon their arrival, all seems fine. Better than they had imagined. But whilst the other older brother Justin is keeping his guard up, Aaron, the most daunted by the supposed futility of his efforts outside the commune, quickly falls into the ways of the group. But the reality of the so-called UFO death cult might not be what they remembered at all, and something vastly more sinister might be afoot. As they struggle to understand what's going on, and what's best for themselves, the brothers' relationships become fractured. Normalcy might have been a noble thing to pursue on behalf of his little brother, but can Justin convince Aaron that struggling in the real world is better than being comfortable in a fallacy, uh, one that he believes the commune to be? And when faced with demons that they cannot hide from, where will their loyalty lie? 
This is a very low budget passion project from two novice filmmakers that proves that you don't need millions of dollars and an all like an A-list cast to create a good cinema. Um, to create good cinema, not a good cinema. Um, it feels like a Lovecraft-esque feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, and what I really loved about this film was, um, it's a, a term that came to me whilst I was watching it, and it's probably not going to make any sense, but it had a consistent randomness to it. What I mean by that is there's, this is a really weird film, and some of the more kind of sci-fi horror, horror elements are ones that you might not fully understand on first viewing. And and when re-watching this film for the podcast, I noticed certain things, certain elements to the, the, um, the layers of the plot, which I hadn't noticed at first, and just, it enriched the film for me. And trust me, any film that gets better with a second viewing was definitely made with some passion. The thought and care that went into this film... And the thing is, whilst it may sound quite complicated, um, and I'm not, I'm not probably describing it as very complicated, but the thing is, I don't want to go into too much detail about what actually happens in this film. The more that I, I leave you to discover by yourself, the more you'll actually take away from this, the more you'll enjoy it. It's got some very weird elements, um, and there's not a lot of explanation as to what's going on. They, they rely on your ability to be ill-informed to kind of keep you on the edge of your seat and i think that's important i think that's one of the most important things of horror films is that the more you give the audience an understanding of the hows and the whys the less of a, an unnerving situation you're creating and i think what this film does to kind of really get into that kind of horror feel is it gives you enough to be worried about but not enough to give you an understanding that kind of reassures or kind of comforts. Um, there is nothing comforting about the situation these boys find themselves in, um, but there is some consistency to some of the elements of what's happening around them that makes you, it, it makes sure that you don't get lost in the, the bizarre randomness of the film. It doesn't get too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Abstract with its narrative. It does stay rooted in some very, very consistent elements. And for that reason, it does keep you tied in to the, the actual plot of the film. It's it's a very, very good drama. It's a very, at times, frightening horror film. Um, and it's a very gripping, tense story of mystery and, you know, the supernatural. Um, as well as being about, like, sort of families and siblings and and you know who you're raised with rather than who you're related to um and what part these people play in your lives and your upbringing for me it's an absolute belter it's an absolute winner and i loved it um as i say these two lads they're everything about this movie and they did a fantastic job and you know um definitely wants to keep an eye on um in what aspect, I don't know, because the cinematography is fantastic. The script, fantastic. The directing, fantastic. The performances, fantastic. So which one do they concentrate on? I'm not sure, but I'm watching. I'll check it out. Whatever you want to do, I'll buy a ticket. So that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Um, Yeah, 
I'm really pleased with how this podcast is going at the moment. Um, and I have to say thank you. Um, I've seen a, quite a big increase in the number of people downloading uh, week by week. And last week's been a fantastic week. And I'm seeing new people listening to the podcast. Now, there's a great following in the USA. Um, shout out to New York, Virginia, Michigan, um, New Jersey, California. Uh, thank you, everyone in America that's listening. Um, also, uh, new listeners in Sri Lanka, Thailand, India. Uh, thank you, guys. And of course, the hundreds of you that seem to be listening in the UK, um, you're awesome. Uh, and thank you very much. Uh, you know, the more you guys tune in, the more I feel enthused and um, excited about doing the podcast, the more I feel like I need to give you more. Um, and I hope, I hope I'm delivering. Um, if you think I am, do feel free to leave a comment. As I say, we do have a Facebook page. We do have Instagram. I'm going to set up Twitter because for some reason I haven't got around to doing that yet, but people have been pointing out that I need to do that. Um, but the best thing you can do if you are enjoying the, the podcast is tell a friend. Um, share the podcast uh, on social media. Um, you know, just talk about it with your workmates. What have you listened to today? Oh, the following feature. It's, uh, you know, movie news and gossip and some reviews as well. Um, yeah, I don't know why I'm advertising it to you. You're, if you if you're listening to this part of the podcast in particular, then I guess you're already a fan. Um, it's one of those weird things. It's a bit like when you see um, a TV channel advertising itself in the middle of one of its shows. Like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm watching. You don't have to. Why are you trying to pull me in? Show this channel. Show this advert on another channel. Well, um, yeah, I don't really have another channel to advertise my podcast on at the moment. I am looking into that. I'm looking into a, a lot of things that can somehow improve this. Um, uh, another shout I'd like to give as well is to my friend Chris Denman. Um, he uh, works at uh, he he works in radio. He's a producer and he's a very good friend of mine that I went to college with, and he's been giving me some advice on the production quality of this podcast, which hopefully you'll have noticed has improved over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, it takes a lot of people. Um, to give me the encouragement I need to do this. I, I may do this on my own, but if it wasn't for the support of my friends um, and family, then, you know, none of it would happen. So thanks to all the listeners. Uh, thanks to all my supporters, my friends and family. Um, we'll be back next week. I don't really know what I'm going to be looking into. Um, I can't think of any amazing films that are coming out. There's one that I've seen advertised um, called Blood Machines which is a, a weird kind of low-budget um, sci-fi horror uh, that came about as a result of uh, a music video that used some CGI that was so popular that they turned it into a, an extended video and, and eventually into a feature. Um, I don't know. It's it's a very interesting-looking film, um, but there's no real like sort of other big releases this week. Um, but I'll keep an eye out for some. As I say, you keep an eye on the uh, Facebook page and the Instagram page and we'll let you know what's coming up. Um, but in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, enjoy your week. And I will see you next Sunday. Peace, love, empathy, and take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye.